Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Procrastination. We all do it. I haven't been to the gym in over a month, yet every single day I tell myself tomorrow's going to be the day. But let's face it. There are certain things that when you push them off, actually get harder to do. Losing weight quitting smoking, and saving for retirement. Today's show is brought to you by Prudential. It turns out our brains are hardwired to procrastinate. It's one of the human behaviors that can get in the way of planning your financial future. Don't delay. Learn more at bringyourchallenges.com. Prudential, bring your challenges. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Thanks for joining me. I'm excited to bring this episode to you today because it's really one of those shows that defines Smart People Podcast. I think it's one of those shows that differentiates us. We're covering a topic that is extremely timely, but we're taking a different approach. We have somebody on who is covering it in a, in a different way. Listen, growing water shortages around the world are topping the news right now, and it's beyond just California. As a matter of fact, USA Today recently tracked the top eight U.S. states that are running out of water. Water policy is broken around the world, but there's one place that's gotten it right, and that's Israel. The desert nation is not only avoiding a water crisis, but it's maintaining a water surplus, which it exports to its neighbors for money and keeps the relationships going. So that's what we talk about in this interview. Really, we talk about the growing issue of water shortages and how Israel has solved it. And they are training the rest of the world on how they did it in a desert, mind you. Okay, so we are interviewing Seth Siegel. He's the author of the brand new book, Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. Seth is a businessman, activist, writer, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's spoken at the United Nations, APAC, Aspen Ideas Festival, many more places. He's written for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, and he graduated from Cornell University and Cornell Law School. I think you've got the gist of it. If you like the show, guys, we really appreciate those iTunes reviews as always. Don't forget our Amazon link. If you're buying stuff on Amazon, just use the link smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon and we get a little kickback. You can find us and everything else, past episodes, etc. at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Here it is, our interview with Seth Siegel as we discuss the growing concern of water scarcity and how we can fix it. Enjoy.
All right. Well, Seth, thanks so much for being on the show. As we were kind of just briefly discussing, I'm so excited to talk about a topic that has, it's extremely important. The, the repercussions, if we don't talk about it now, can be massive and deadly. And we need to learn about it. And that's what this show is about. So thanks so much for being on. It's a real pleasure to be here. So the primary topic we're talking about today is really the water shortage that we're experiencing globally. And uh, your your brand new book, Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World, is what we'll focus on. Uh, but first, I want to get a little bit of a feel for your background and how you came to write a, a book about water. Well, I've been writing since I've been a teenager, but because it takes a fair amount of time to be able to sit down and write a book, which is a lot harder than writing, say, 100, 750-word op-ed pieces. Um, I haven't had the time to write books, even though I've had ideas for them. I had a wonderful and robust career first as a lawyer. Then I had a wonderful business idea that let me uh, grow with a partner into a global marketing company, which I ended up selling to Ford Motor Company. And after that sale, I made the decision that I would be devoting myself primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to doing uh, good deeds and community service the rest of my life. I still dabble in business a bit and start businesses from time to time. I found myself about three, three and a half years ago uh, at a meeting of a think tank that I'm a member of called the Council on Foreign Relations. And the speaker there was a very serious guy, a retired Air Force general who now uh, works in the National Intelligence Council, which is part of our federal government's intelligence agencies. And he told the story about this coming global water crisis. And I think of myself as a fairly well-informed citizen, and I was rather shocked that I had never before heard about this issue. I obviously knew that droughts come and go and that I obviously knew that infrastructure in some parts of the world are better than in others. But I didn't understand what he laid out that day, which was that 60% of the world's landmass and 40 of our 50 U.S. states would soon be experiencing water scarcity issues. So I, I went back to my office a little bit shaken by that. Um, and started um, going online looking for articles to read and read for a couple of days off and on. And a couple of things happened. First, I realized as I started to look for a book I could read is that there really was no book on the subject matter. The second thing that I discovered was that Israel remarkably was um, uh, probably the world's most advanced water country. And I say remarkably because I had some familiarity with Israel, having once been a graduate student there. And I knew that the majority of the country, about 60%, is desert. I knew that Israel has a very rapidly growing population, mostly because of immigra immigration. And I knew that it was a rapidly growing economy. So generally speaking, you put together desert, lack of rainfall, fast-growing economy, fast-growing population, and you're usually talking about water catastrophe. But Israel somehow or other had jumped ahead on the innovation curve in water and had made itself weather immune. And I found that fascinating. And once I discovered there was no book on that specific topic, I decided that I would take some time out from my other endeavors and write the book. And that's how Let There Be Water came to be born. Well, thanks for that, that history. And so I think a, a good place to go from there is to discuss the current issues with water. Like you said on a global basis and within the U.S., many of the states that aren't currently experiencing it, you know, are predicted to experience water shortages in the near future. And I think oftentimes we get caught in our little bubble. Like, for example, I'm in Virginia. We got hit with, you know, the hurricane or the periphery of the hurricane last week. It rained for five straight days. I, if I look out my window and go, look, we're fine with water. I got more than I can deal with. 
So how, how do we make this a national and global, globally recognized issue if you're not currently dealing with it, say in California? Well, let me uh, lay out for you. I I think you're raising a profoundly important uh, issue with the question that you're asking, and that is that we just don't prioritize water enough in our national conversation. For example, we talk about energy, whether it's coal or gas or oil or renewables. We talk about that all the time. It's in the daily newspaper every day. But unless you're experiencing a drought or unless you're you know, have a water main break in your town, the chance of having a story about water planning in your daily newspaper is pretty small, but it's equally important. The bigger problem is, is that unlike a hurricane where, you know, as you just mentioned a a moment ago, unlike a hurricane where if you know a hurricane is coming on Sunday, well, on Tuesday or Wednesday, you go out to Home Depot or Ace Hardware, you buy some tape and you buy some sandbags and you protect yourself against it. And then the hurricane passes and you're fine. With water issues, it takes about 10 years minimum to build out what you need to build out in earnest. And given that, part of the reason I wrote Let There Be Water is that you really need to be thinking about issues now. And concerned citizens have to be demanding of our governments more spending on infrastructure, more planning, and and more insight into what we're going to do to arrange for our water future. And if I could just expand on the answer for a second more, and that is to say that there are macro trends like climate change that are going to force us to rethink our water in a way that we may not think we need it now. And there's lots of pollution of our water sources, which cause us to not think we need to fix it. And there's lots of huge amounts of huge amounts of water loss every day to failed infrastructure in the U.S., but it's underground, so you don't see it. But approximately a third of our water every day is lost to broken infrastructure, which we need to fix. But, but you know, we fix highways and we fix bridges, but we need to be fixing our water too. And then more, more important, globally, we're going to suffer from this on a global scale, all these same issues globally, and that's going to affect us as the world's most important trading partner. It's going to affect the U.S. in a very profound way. So we need to be thinking about how we can use our foreign policy to assist countries in getting their water programs as good as they can be. And, and, and we should lead the way with our own programs. You know, that, that brings me to one of the questions I had, which was, isn't it fair to say that much of the drought, say in California, or given that it's, it's located in specific regions throughout the globe, that it is due to primarily climate change? Well, drought, though, you know, Israel um, is in the Middle East, and Israel is in the driest region of the world, and the Middle East suffers from droughts from time to time. And yet, if you are properly prepared for the drought, you don't feel the drought. If If you've gotten your society and your infrastructure up and running, and I can give specific examples if you'd like, then you will not even notice it. It's sort of like there's a rainstorm outside, but you're inside, so you don't notice it. And the goal here should be to do what everyone can do, which is to make themselves immune from a drought. But when the drought comes, all kinds of suffering goes on. Um, I'm not talking about people not being able to wash their cars. I'm talking about farmers having to drastically cut the quality of their lives. I'm talking about farm workers having to be thrown out of work. And then also I'm talking about the daily lives of individuals who it, it is disruptive to them. And none of those things are necessary. We can be, we could actually have it all in water if we're prepared to plan for it. You know, I think your book is kind of a microcosm of oftentimes what goes wrong when you have 
fairly abundant resources as we do in in much of the United States and and the developed world, which is we want things now. We turn on our faucet, water comes out, we're fine until something goes wrong. And then we're already a little bit behind the eight ball because we're only willing to look as far as we've known, as far as we can see, which up until now hasn't been a big deal because the rainfall has supported our water usage. Right. And you have that so precisely right. And but my point is, is that I want that lifestyle to continue exactly as it is. Mm -hmm. I want that. I want us to be able to be completely careless (laughs) about how we think about water. But we can only do that paradoxically is if we think about water. (laughs) We need to plan now for larger population, for greater affluence. We need to plan now for climate change. And if we're not going to do that, we're going to wake up one day and find ourselves in a very, very bad situation. I was saying, and then we'll have ten years of of pain while we're playing very fast catch up. Right. I mean, to some degree, that's what's going on with California right now. California need not be suffering from what it's suffering from. Yes, it has a bad drought, no doubt about it, but it's not such a bad drought. Mm-hmm. I mean, many places in the world have suffered worse droughts. Particularly, Israel has suffered worse droughts and found it's able to continue going on. Israel maintains right now that if a ten year drought were to begin right now be immune from that based upon what they have done already. And I think that's the kind of fail-safe that we should be preparing for in a, in a changing world where climate change is almost certainly going to become part of our daily lives in an accelerating way in the coming years. Well, thanks so much for that. I, you know, I think now that's a really clear picture. It's like, look, if you're, if you're in America, you know, and globally, but again, speaking kind of um, from where most of the listeners are, you see this is what can happen. It's happening, right? It's happening in the Western region, not just California. And it's only going to continue given growing populations and global uh, climate change and everything. So we've seen what it is. We're going to have to fix it. And we can either wait until every state is affected, the entire country, or we can start enacting some of these water policies. Fair summation? Totally, completely correct. Bullseye, A-plus on your term paper. (laughs) Perfect. Well, that's great, because now I want to get into what I find fascinating, especially about your book, Let There Be Water, is that it's a book about a solution, and we never get those anymore. We get books (laughs) about the problem. We get fear-mongering, which is then used for political gains and political you know, uh, status and differences and all that. But you say, look, we have this model in Israel. Which is shocking, by the way, that it's I mean, I just never thought about that. But so let's let's get back to the history of this. Why has Israel been the the, why have they been the ones to figure this out? Well, it starts quite a long time ago, and I don't want to bore your listeners with a long history. But I've actually in the research and writing of the book, I came to find this among the more, if I can use a word in a nonfiction book, among the more thrilling aspects of the story. And that is, this all comes out of a period of, of actually a period of tragedy. What happened was in the 1930s, um, there was a uh, cutoff of all Jewish immigration, or virtually all Jewish immigration, to the land of Israel by the then rulers, the British. And um, the excuse the British gave was that there wasn't enough water in the region. Uh, There was actually not the reason, and in the book I tell the real reason why this was, and it kind of has a very sad component to it, because the Jewish immigration would have led to the saving of probably millions of lives of Jews who were, who were murdered in the Holocaust, who were trying to get out of Europe, and the British would not permit them to, to uh, get visas. But um, be- after the British said, we can't let them in because there's a shortage of water, 
the leadership of the Jewish community in uh, what was called Palestine uh, at that time, um, the Zionist leadership sat down and said, we need to figure out how we can answer this British claim that there's enough water. And this caused very bold and innovative thinking. And it was sort of like the way the U.S. government worked on the Manhattan Project to build a nuclear bomb. The Zionist leadership focused on how do we come up with water solutions to prove to the British that there's all the water that anybody could need and want here. But because there was an ulterior motive by the British, they really didn't care about the sufficiency of water, to tell you the truth. So um, no matter what the Zionist leadership did, they ignored that. And of course, the Holocaust happened and almost nobody was permitted into, into the land of Israel during those years. But the benefit of this, despite that horrible tragedy, uh, the benefit of this is that after the war was over and after Israel achieved independence in that great period where countries all over the world were getting decolonialized and independent, Israel started its, as a state with a running head start of insight into how it could be managing its water. And the plans that it created in 1939 and 1940 and 43 began to be implemented in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they are actually the basis to this day of Israel's water ideas. And the ideas were to come up with bold infrastructure, to come up with great new technologies, including many that hadn't been invented yet and aren't still yet invented, but knowing what could be done, to have a conservation program where you educate your citizens to use all the water you need, but to waste none of the water you don't need. And, to, uh, and now, more recently, to rethink agriculture so that Israel is the most, probably the most advanced agriculture society in the world in terms of its water use. Uh, and so those were the, those, that's the precursor of all this. Now, this may sound a little bit like it's an engineering book, but it isn't at all. It's a story of, of people overcoming what seems like insurmountable obstacles and in that regard, I found these stories so inspiring that I felt that I really had to write the book and tell these stories, not just for water purposes, but to give people heart uh, all over the world as the fact that there'd be opportunities to overcome things that seem that they could not overcome. Now let's take a break for a message from our sponsor this week, Northern Catch, the delicious new seafood subscription service connecting you with the pristine waters of Alaska by providing you with sustainable, wild Alaskan seafood delivered straight to your door. If you heard last week's episode, you heard I got a chance to have a chat with one of the co-founders, Garrett McKinney. And there's so many things that I love about this company. It's not just the sustainability aspect, although that's a huge one. Garrett and his co-founder grew up on the waters of Alaska. They were commercial fishermen. They know what they're doing and they have a mission to allow anyone to get a taste of delicious, wild-caught, sustainable Alaskan seafood. You probably know that seafood is one of the healthiest things you can add to your diet, but oftentimes you're worried, is it good? Is it fresh? Is it going to have that fish smell or taste, you know? And the thing with Northern Catch is it's deep frozen one time, all the way from when it's caught till it gets to your door. It's been frozen, locking in all the freshness and keeping that flavor. So give it a shot. If you want to enjoy delicious wild Alaskan seafood, head to northerncatch.fish. Yep, you heard that right. It's .fish. You donate $10 to the Alaskan Marine Conservation Council, and you receive a captain's card that gets you a $50 discount on the first month of your Alaskan seafood subscription. Head over to northerncatch.fish and sign up for your delicious seafood straight from Alaska. Now back to our show. 
And for those of us that are unaware and, and have not spent time uh, in Israel, what is the climate like? What's the what's the nature of you know that area and in, in, in regards to how much water they have available to them? Well, it's, it, I'll start with one very key fact. I had mentioned earlier that Israel had a rapidly growing economy and rapidly growing population. Um, the country has grown tenfold in population since independence in 1948. It's grown, the economy has grown 70-fold, 70-fold since 1948. In that same time period, though, rainfall, because of climate change, has diminished by 50%. So there's not a lot of rain anywhere in the country. The southern, about 60% of the country is a classic desert. It's like a moonscape. Um, however, Israel, since the 1950s, has determined that they were going to do farming in the desert. And so Israel is the only country that in the 20th century ended the century with less desert than it started the century with. Oh, wow. So in the years from 48 to 2000, they managed to plant so many farms and trees in, in, in what was desert area that now if you look at a satellite picture of Israel, it's really kind of shockingly exciting to see green in places that everywhere else would be brown. Um, and so, um, and so th this type of, of thinking and behavior is something that permeates the society. Now, in the further north of the country, it's a little greener, and it does get a little bit of rainfall, uh, mostly from November to March or April, uh, but not, not great quantities. And then it only has one freshwater lake, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus famously walked. And it has a bunch of, of small rivers. Uh, the Jordan River, which in mythology and, and, and uh, gospel songs is a great and mighty river, is actually in some places so small that with a good running jump, you could jump across it. Wow. Wow. I think that paints a, a really good picture. And so I want to get into what Israel has done specifically. But I think in order to give that some context, we need to understand how say, America or the rest of the world really deals with water. I mean, again, getting to the fact that most of us are lucky enough to go to a faucet and turn it on and not understand anything else about it. So first, can we discuss how do we deal with it? And by we, I mean, you know, here in America. And then we can talk about how differently Israel deals with water. Yeah, glad to do so. Okay, so I could do this from a number of different perspectives, but I think if I do it from just two, it's of the most value. Um, and I'll do it from the perspective of our urban water, our water in our cities, and our water on our farms. And let me start with the farms. Water around the world is the largest consumer of water in almost every country, with one or two exceptions. Um, and um, in, on average, it's about 50% to 90% of a country's water goes to agriculture. In the U.S., it's about 70%. And um, the problem about that is, is that in much of the U.S., we still use very wasteful techniques. We flood irrigate our fields. And the, the term almost ex explains what it is. But what it is is you plant the field, perhaps you dig furrows, and then on some regular intervals, you flood the field and then you let the water hit the roots where it hits the roots. Most of the water evaporates. Some large percentage of the water just dribbles into the soil far from the roots. And then the farmer does it again. It's an exceptionally wasteful irrigation technique. We'll talk about what Israel does in a second or, or so, but, but just keep that image in mind of flood irrigated fields. We also um, grow food and our crops in places where they should not be grown. So, for example, 
if you are a farmer whose property is adjacent to a river, you are permitted under, under uh, property law to take as much water out of that river as you want for your own use, which encourages terrible wastefulness. So you can grow cotton in the desert and not grow it in an efficient way. And you can grow cotton by flooding the field in the desert where the sand just basically absorbs all the water. It's a very, very bad technique. And um, we really should, should, if not ban it, we should help farmers transition to a different way of doing it. The other problem with agriculture in the country, and not just the U.S., but all over the world, is that mostly in the past 50 to 75 years, we have overpumped our aquifers. And aquifers are those underground water resources. Sometimes they're huge water caverns, and sometimes it's just very highly uh, wet uh, sand that's down below anywhere from a couple dozen feet to thousands of feet below. And we pump that up. Now, the problem is with about pumping aquifers is that an aquifer took thousands of years, sometimes tens of thousands of years to fill. And in many cases, certainly around the world and also in the U.S., in just the last 50 years, we've pumped, in some cases, as much as two-thirds of the aquifers dry. So that uh, we know sustainability-wise that it has maybe just another few years of use, and then what are we going to do to grow our crops? This is true in California, where aquifers have been, have been unregulated until just a few weeks ago, a few months ago now, I guess. And in the Midwest, the Ogallala Aquifer, the High Plains Aquifer, which spans some many of the largest growing states like Nebraska and uh, west, from Nebraska down to West Texas, that aquifer has been so severely pumped that there are many places that no longer can extract water from the aquifer. And this is a catastrophe environmentally. And it's going to be an economic catastrophe when farmers can no longer get water to grow their crops. So that's this picture for agriculture. I'll, I'll be a lot shorter with the urban story. The urban no, yeah, story, I, I definitely want to hear it, though. <laughs> the urban story is one of we don't have smart conservation. And what we especially don't have is we don't have smart infrastructure planning and infrastructure repair. Mayors and governors take the point of view that water is functionally free and that repairs are functionally expensive. So why go to citizens and ask them for b money for bond issues to fix infrastructure, or why take tax dollars to build infrastructure when you could be using those same dollars for things that are popular vote-getters like schools and parks and hospitals that are visible? Water lines are below ground. And politicians aren't going to get the benefit of building out a 10-year program because they're probably going to move on to another job by the time the thing gets opened up. So, so it's, the, it's, it's all the perverse incentives that you would not want to have in a system that leads us to a situation where domestically in our cities, we have every incentive to let the system rot. And this is where citizens must make demands of our elected officials and say them, that we, yes, we want schools and hospitals and other things that give you lots of opportunities to cut ribbons and have your photo in the, po uh, photo in the newspapers, but we also need to be thinking about things that we aren't seeing, which is our water systems. And I can give one very dynamic example of the situation in which water is seen as free and repairs are seen as expensive, and therefore elected officials choose not to do it. In New York City, New York City has some of the finest drinking water in the country. And New York City gets its water from a bunch of different sources. Now, one of those sources, um, uh, and they're all fed by these massive pipes. You could drive a large truck through it, and you could probably, probably drive a few trucks side by side through this water pipe. Wow. Anyway, one of these sources in 1980 
discovered that it had a leak. And it wasn't any leak. It was probably the leak of everyone's nightmares. It was a 35 million gallon per day leak. And that was 1980. They discovered it in 1980. That's a long time ago. And the decision was made not to do anything about it. Because water is free, or so they said, and repairs are expensive. Now, after a few years, they said, you know, maybe we should do something. So in somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s, they started doing some engineering drawings and started thinking about it. But nothing on a crash program, again, because water is free and engineering programs cost money. And finally, finally, I said this started in 1980. Finally, in 2014, a decision was finally made to go forward with a capital project to repair the leak. And it will be completed in 2021 if it ends on budget and on time now now we're talking about 41 years of 35 million gallons a day being lost because the decision was made that water was free and that repairs are expensive and had we put any price at all on the water had we put any value on our water we would have repaired this not in 19 not in 2014 but in 1980, when we first discovered it. I mean, I mean, to put it in perspective, right, the cheapest, if, if you were to go to a store and buy, a, you know, a bottled gallon of water, which, of course, it's kind of a ridiculous comparison, but still, say the cheapest is, you know, 99 cents, a buck, right? That's, would you say 35 million, $35 million a day, if you were to look at it like that? Now, granted, that's not how it works, but just out of comparison, to give it a scope, that's insanity. You're precisely right. By the way, when you're buying water on a grand scale like that, obviously it's far cheaper than 99 cents a gallon. Sure. But, but even so, even at a penny a gallon, the point is right. you're still wasting fabulous amounts of, of opportunity and fabulously, unbelievably Niagara Falls levels of water. Wow. Well, and so perfect. So thanks for that. Let's, let's get into then what – Israel is doing. And let's talk some specifics. I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in is, well, I guess twofold. One, what technology are they utilizing? Because many of us think of America as the, you know, technological leader of the world. And I I don't know if that's disputable, but in my opinion, it's not. So how how the heck is it that that they have figured this out? You know what? This actually puts me on uh, one of my most favorite topics, which is You know, America is the greatest technological force in the world. Israel is a wonderful country, but it's not populated by supermen and giants. Anything Israel did, we could be doing. We have far more money. We have far deeper industrial base. We have great technology. We have brilliant scholars and professors at fabulous institutions of engineering and policy. So anything Israel has done, we could be doing and should be doing. And it's a, it's, a, it's a scandal that we haven't done it. And it's a scandal that we have to wait until we have a drought to start thinking about doing it. But I couldn't agree with you more is that you're absolutely right. There's nothing that Israel has done that we couldn't do. The difference is that Israel has started thinking about this a long time ago, as I said earlier, and they care about it a lot. And until we think about it, until we care about it a lot, we're not going to be in a better position either. So I'll tell you some of the things that Israel's done, if you'd like me to do that now. Yeah, absolutely. The first and most important thing that Israel decided to do was because agriculture is the biggest consumer of water, they made the decision that what they had to do was they had to rethink agriculture. So there has been no flood irrigation in Israel for decades and decades and decades. I think the last flood irrigated field was 1970. 
And the reason for that is that in 1960s, early 1960s, and I tell the story of how this happened in my book, it's an extraordinary story of a man who had been a leader, who had been the leader, the Leonardo da Vinci of water in Israel. He gets into a turf battle with the government. He ends up quitting his government job. He's sitting home, licking his wounds. And this maestro of water comes up with this fascinating idea of drip irrigation. Instead of flood irrigating the fields, he says, instead of just wasting all that water, what if we were to put little drippers next to the roots of the plants and let them get water on some regular interval? And that way, there won't be evaporation of hardly any scale at all. And that way, the plants can grow healthier, more robustly, and overall, better for everyone. The only difference is there's a small cost for the drip irrigation equipment. And that idea was commercialized inside of Israel. Israel was the first country to adopt it. Today, Israel has 75% of its fields are irrigated with drip irrigation equipment. The others with sprinkler equipment, flood irrigation, zero. And it's something that we could be doing in the United States as well. The other thing Israel did was it said to itself, you know, we've got a lot of water under our desert sands. But it's mostly low quality water with lots of minerals and lots of salt in it. What if we were able to figure out a way to develop seeds that actually thrived on poor quality water? So we could use that water to grow our agriculture and not have to take water out of our civilian supply. And so indeed they did that. In a non-GMO way, Israeli scientists came up with plants, with crops that thrive on slightly salty water called brackish water. And not only are they good, but if you've ever had an Israeli tomato, an Israeli cucumber, an Israeli melon, you're in for a treat because it's sweeter than anything that I've ever tasted here. And the reason for that is, is that in the cell structure, as the cell wicks away the salty water, it produces sugars. So Israeli produce is actually delicious and fabulous grown on this marginal water. The second thing that Israel did, aside from rethinking agriculture in terms of irrigation and seeds, is that it made a decision that's a little bit controversial now, but I'll guarantee you if you listen to this uh, broadcast five years from now or 15 years from now, you for sure, it'll be as commonplace as, as, as the Internet is today versus 25 years ago. And that is Israel made a decision in the 1950s that it was going to take its sewage, treat it to an ultra high level of quality, and then reuse it for agriculture in selective ways. And so in the world today, very few countries make reuse of their sewage. Spain is second in the world with 25%. And in Israel, it's about 85, 90%. And so almost all their sewage gets reused. And the beauty of that is that means that every drop gets used twice, three times, four times, maybe even more. In the U.S., by the way, the reuse level is about 7%, which just shows how far we have to go to catch up to what we could be and should be doing. Now let's take a break for a moment from our sponsor this week. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the only learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com slash smartpeople. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart people. Lynda.com is for you. For listeners of this show, it's the problem solvers, the curious, people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn how to negotiate, build that new website, or boost your Photoshop skills. Go to Lynda.com 
and feed your curious mind. There's a few courses I really recommend on there, one being Growth Hacking Fundamentals, another new one I just checked out is Learning to Be Assertive, and Going Paperless Start to Finish. There's so many benefits to a lynda.com membership, such as watching and learning from top experts, streaming thousands of videos on demand, and learning at your own pace. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, anything you can think of, all for one flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to try something new, I want you to visit lynda.com slash smart people and sign up for a free 10-day trial. It's free. Why not? That's l-y-n-d-a dot com slash smart people. Now back to the show. I feel like I heard not too long ago on the news or in the paper some like argument over this the reuse of sewage water and and the tagline of the headline it gets is like obviously uh something about i don't know reusing poop water or so, you know something and then people get scared and say no without really trying to understand what it's well all i'll about. confess that i am personally not an advocate for what is, um, is a movement that i actually disagree with which is called toilet to tap that's what it was. And, there you and, go. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm actually not a big fan of that. I, although I know, because I've studied it closely, I know that safety-wise, you can absolutely drink it. I think that you're asking people in a democratic society where we're accustomed to abundance right. to do something that even just talking about it, I feel like I'm gagging as I'm speaking. <laughs> I completely <laughs> and, agree with you. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I don't want to. I, I don't really want to do that. So there's a very good solution. <laughs> Treat the water to an ultra-high level and then reuse it for agriculture. And, and then there's so many scientific studies that show that there's absolutely no difference between the water from one and water from the other. And, and consumers wouldn't even know there's a difference. And So why don't we do that? This is the part of these conversations that just really pisses me off. It's like we have the solution. We have the resources. Especially say something like what you just mentioned, right? We just – we we just um, clean up the sewage water and use it for agriculture. Where's the where's the? Do you the want to hear there? what's insane? Insane. Okay. Yeah, I think so, I've heard a lot of insane. So, so you live in Virginia, I think you said, and uh -huh. I, I don't know if you yep. live near a seashore or not. Do you? I, I don't know if you're inland or what. Okay, but let's uh, let's let's imagine you were in Norfolk or something like that. Okay, imagine this, right. or imagine you're in California. Let, let's actually not take Virginia. Let's take a real, mm -hmm. real extraordinary example. Let's take Los Angeles. Los Angeles, great golf courses. Everyone's got green lawns. It's not that far from agriculture. Los Angeles is our second largest city. Because of the Clean Water Act, we clean all the water to this basically the same level that Israel does. Okay? And then what do we do in Los Angeles? We dump it into the Pacific Ocean. We spend all that money and all that energy making it clean, and then we dump it in the Pacific Ocean. Wait, Why? Why? Exactly. Why? Because the decision was made, oh, we have enough water from the Colorado. We have enough water from here and there and whatever. Well, we'll pump the aquifers. Why? Why not just build out a parallel plumbing system, which Israel did with its sewage? Why not build a parallel plumbing system and bring it to gardens and bring it to golf courses and bring it to lawns and bring it to agriculture? Why not do that? And then all the water that people are using and watering their lawns, that then could be stay could stay in the in the aquifer or it could be used for household use in a way that people don't feel guilty. I mean it's just unbelievable how much water gets wasted every day in watering our lawns. 
So, and actually, you know, the fact that you're from Virginia is actually kind of interesting. It's estimated that the number of lawns that are watered in the United States, if all patched together, would be the same size the square miles as the state of Virginia. <laughs> just think about how massive, what a massive amount of water that is every day that we use nationally that we don't really have to be using. So, so the, and, and the other thing that Israel did, which I think is, is profoundly important on the domestic side, I'm sorry, let me say one other thing, which mm-hmm. is on the domestic side, which is Israel desalinates its water. Uh, they, 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 most, of, most of the world population now, about 50%, lives within 50 miles of a seashore, we could be, which is a very short distance for a water line. We could be desalinating water in lots of places and then supplementing our civilian supply. And then the final thing is what Israel made a decision to do some years ago is they were not going to accept a leak level like is accepted in the whole rest of the world. So that in, in Dublin, Ireland, it's over 40% of their water gets lost to leaks. In Chicago, about 25%. In New York City, about 20%. In Los Angeles, close to a third. It's insane. Israel made a concerted effort. They're going to fix their pipes keep them in great repair, use a lot of technology to test them and make sure that they're not leaking. And Israel now loses about 10% of its water to leaks. And they have a national goal they announced last year of getting down to 5% by by the year 2020. Well, so I guess, you know, for there's probably some people out there that are more knowledgeable about this than I am or, or more opinionated are saying, look, yes, this all sounds great. But the reason we're not doing it is because of how expensive it is. And you know, we have so many issues that we need to deal with, we want to deal with, and we only have, a, you know, we're already running this, this massive deficit. Um, we got education reform, healthcare reform, immigration, uh, you know, overcrowded jails. It's, the list goes on and on. And so they say, we'll deal with water when everybody wants to deal with water. That's probably the response, right? It's often what I hear, yeah. To play devil's advocate, why not just say, look, until this, until you can't turn on your faucet and get water in the U.S., we, we, got, we got bigger fish to fry. Okay, a couple, a couple of responses. First, and I don't want to focus only on Israel, but I'll just give an example about Israel. Oh, yeah. Israel famously has severe security problems, right? They have neighbors who want them dead. Mm-hmm. Um, there are terrorist attacks on some regular basis. The country spends double, as a per capita, double what the U.S. spends on defense. The um, U.S. spends about 4%. Israel spends a little over 8% on its, on its security and defense. And that's a huge drain on the country. Israel absorbs many immigrants from around the world. Huge drain on the economy. And yet, even so, because they have prioritized water, They've made sure that they have all the water they need and when they need it. Now, you're absolutely right. You could take the position of, I'll worry about water when the water runs out. And Bob Marley, the great Jamaican singer, Hmm. said, you ain't going to miss your water till the well runs dry. And he might be right. But why would we put ourselves, the richest, most wonderful country in the world, why would we put ourselves in that position of preparing ourselves to become like a a third world country where you turn on the faucet and nothing comes out? Why Why would we do that? And why would we accept the economic disruption that water crisis could cause for us? And there would be an economic disruption. It's not just, oh, I'll have to take a shorter shower. You need water for energy production. You need water for producing almost everything that we manufacture. And if you don't have that, it's going to transform our economy. 
I think there that I like that response. I that one just resonates with me because you know, as as you know, having started very successful businesses, at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to dollars and cents. Well, if you say, okay, when we get to that point, it's not just going to be an inconvenience; it's going to affect our economy in a in an exponentially greater way than if we deal with it now. I think people go, all right, now I can listen to that. You know, there's also a national security reason for us to be concerned about this, <clears throat> and not just in the U.S., but around the world. You know, a few, I think it's weeks ago now, um, <clears throat> Europe was convulsed by the Syrian and Iraqi civil war refugees who came across the Mediterranean into, uh, into Europe. There weren't that many, actually. There's several thousand. What are we going to do globally when the water gives out in India or China or South America or Brazil particularly? And mass migration start convulsing continents. What are we going to do? What is that going to mean for our export industries? What is that going to mean for our stability? What is it going to mean for our military? So <clears throat> I make the argument that not only does the U.S. need to get its own act together, and we do, but America also needs to get the world's act together as the world leader. As we spend billions of dollars a year on foreign aid, we have to demand of countries that they have water plans and that they are fixing their own water needs as well. I want to ask one last question here, and that is, and it's going to sound ridiculous, but it's in the minds of some, and I'm interested in the answer. The world, the, the globe is what, 90% water, 80% water, right? I, I don't know what the answer is, but it's a lot. It's around there. Um, obviously, it's salt water, but we have desalination practices and processes. Uh, why can't we just say, all right, when we, you know, we're, we're getting low, let's just take some salt out and uh, we'll use that. Well, a couple of reasons why. First of all, um, <clears throat> it takes about uh, the fastest you can build a desalination plant is several years. So e even even that, the idea of waiting till the tap runs dry and desalinating, then it, you can't snap your fingers and get it done <clears throat> in a Harry Potter kind of a way. It, it just, <laughs> that just won't work. Um, the second reason is is that desalinated water, as cheap as it has become, thanks to again to Israeli innovation, I talk about the remarkable history of desalination and how it came to be. And it's, it's for readers who will, uh, for listeners who will remember uh, President Lyndon Johnson, a side of him that actually was shocking to me that I didn't know was that he obsessed about desalination. And he decided among his first acts as president was to partner with the government of Israel in developing desalination solutions. It's a wonderful story about a man who's somewhat reviled in history because of the Vietnam War. And it's, it tells how visionary he was. It's really a side of him that I never knew. But desalination has other problems. It's, it's fairly energy consumptive right now until we come up with alternative energy use for, for powering desalination plants. And even though it's a microscopic amount compared to the amount of the sea we have, you really don't want to be desalinating all of the water because it does create some ecological problems in terms of taking the water out with fish eggs and putting brine, the salty part, back in. So it's okay if it's done to some limit, but between the expense and the environmental cost and the long-range planning, I think that, that desalination should be part of every country's thinking, in some cases every country's practice. But it shouldn't substitute our way of how we get our water in the main. As crazy as it is, I never thought about the fact that when you desalinate water, there's still leftover salt that yeah. has to go somewhere. Yeah. And so you are just, again, man-made change of our environment, which we've seen time and time again, usually ends up with problems. 
I, I'm asked sometimes if I'm optimistic or pessimistic about our water future. And I want to say that I'm actually quite optimistic. And this is why. If there were no model for getting around the growing global water problems we have, I would be pessimistic. Or I'd be at most possibly hopeful, tentatively hopeful. But because of the fact that we have a model in Israel, a country that has all these problems and all these water problems and has figured out a way to be water abundant, so abundant that they give water to the Palestinians and the Jordanians every day, and they have a multi-billion dollar agricultural export industry, it tells me that we in America and we all around the world can do the exact same thing. And knowing that actually gives me a lot of heart and a lot of hope. And therefore, I'm quite optimistic about our water future. Wow. Well, thanks for getting the message out there. Again, the book is Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. It goes into uh, much greater detail, talks about the history. This was a brief overview, but but definitely explaining the the problems and and what we need to know about it, you know, as we talk about on this podcast, being educated, how that can just change the way you act and then your small community that surrounds you. So, Seth, thanks so much. Where can our listeners go to uh, read more about you? Is there a website? Are you on social? Anything like that? Yes, thanks a lot. Um, I have a website, which is www.sethm, like Mary Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L.com. I also tweet many, many times a day on mostly water issues, but lots of stuff. At, and my Twitter handle is at Seth M. Siegel, S-E-T-H-M like Mary, Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L. And the book, Let There Be Water, I'm Very Lucky, is for sale almost everywhere, uh, every Barnes & Noble store, almost every independent bookstore in the U.S., and of course on Amazon. And we'll link to that book on smartpeoplepodcast.com. And I did want to say I had a chance to go to the website, and it's it's really beautiful. There's some fantastic statistics about our water usage and global water usage costs, repercussions. So um, I urge people to go check that out and, and kind of continue this learning. So, again, Seth, thanks so much for being on. Really appreciate it. A real pleasure for me, too. And informed citizenry is what's going to get us out of this problem. Absolutely. All right, Seth, have a great day. You too. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Seth Siegel. Seth's book, Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World, can be found on Amazon and at your local bookstore. If you do decide to purchase Seth's book through Amazon, don't forget to use the smartpeoplepodcast.com Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you're looking for other easy ways to support the show, please go ahead and subscribe to Smart People Podcast on whatever podcatcher app you are using. And then head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating and review over there. As we mentioned before, it truly does help out the show and we really appreciate seeing any feedback and comments that come through. If you'd like to reach out to the show, shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Please make sure you head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com to see all the other episodes in our archive. We've got some great shows coming up, and we will see you all next week. Thanks again to Prudential for sponsoring today's episode and for helping us understand how our brains are hardwired to procrastinate. Not all procrastination is created equal. Did you know that there are different types of procrastinators? There are warriors and big dreamers, buzzer beaters, and people pleasers. 
not to mention the distracted and the unmotivated. What's your procrastination identity? Visit bringyourchallenges.com to take the procrastination personality test and find out. Prudential, bring your challenges.